0: Today is is really the third of of, of three sections that that begin in 1-3 and and Paul works his way through verse 14. Now this is all one sentence, all one basic thought that is put forward driving at an idea that that we're going to go back and we're going to build on a little bit because I want to make sure you're not losing this for the the piecemeal fashion that we've kind of hit it at. We've hit it in three weeks. We did one 3 through 6. We did 1, 7 through 10, and now today we're going to do 1, 11 through 14. But it really all goes together. So I want to read all of it. I want to go back and and reread 11 through 14, and and then that's what we're going to spend the lion's share of our time with. And so open up your Bibles. If you haven't already, there's one in the pew in front of you. We're going to be in Ephesians 1. I'm going to read 3 through 14, and then we're going to walk through 11 through 14. Paul writes, He says, Blessed be things on earth. God is bringing all things under submission to Christ. He's uniting all things through the one he used to create all things. Key in on this. Verse 11, in him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And in him you also. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. Were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. 3-14 through hits this idea that if you're not worshiping God, you can't rightly be understood as a Christian, right? And, and, and so we, we take this idea that if you're not worshiping God, if, if when you consider what God has done in eternity past, what God did before the foundations of the world What God did through Jesus, the redemption through his blood, when you don't recognize the sealing of the Holy Spirit there in verses 13 and 14, when that idea doesn't drive you to worship, you're missing it. You're you're completely missing it. You see, Paul goes in and he's setting up what it is to respond to God. He said our response to God based on those things that he did way long ago in the past, those things he did in our life, those things he's doing today, that the Holy Spirit is a seal of what is yet to be for us, these things produce in us worship. So when you when you wake up and, and you're getting ready for church, it's what, what gets you ready for worship isn't the clothes you wear, it's not how well your kids behave, it's not how kind your spouse is to you on the way, it's not whether or not it's raining and it messes up your hair on the way in. What prepares you for worship, what, what makes you a worshiper of Jesus, is your response to what God has done for you. Amen? I don't think you get that. Somebody should have jumped up in the back and said, hallelujah. What makes you a worshiper of God? It's not your wayward emotions. Like our emotions are impacted by any number of things through the week. You and your wife have a particularly difficult week, your kids get sick, your boss is a jerk, your car gets a flat, you can't pay your bills. All these things destroy and affect our emotions. That's not what's made you a worshiper. If your ability to come in and praise and glorify and honor God hinges on your emotions, I might as well just sit down. I mean, if, if, if our ability to be changed, to be made new, to recognize what God has done and declare back to him praise and adoration hinges on our emotions. Then the winter time is really gonna be a terrible time. Like for around Christmas, you guys get giddy. But every other time, after, after time changing it gets gray and drizzly, you just think, oh man, I gotta go worship again. Worship face. Like some of you have game face for basketball and softball, and that's scary. I've seen you in those settings. Some of you have worship face. You put it on sometime after you shake hands with the guy at the front door. And you put the game face on to get from the car to the door but you recognize when you cross into the church, game face has to go away, it's worship face now. He makes us worshipers because of what he's done in the past. Because of how he affected our eternity in Jesus Christ and because of how he's affecting our right now and on into the future through the power and sealing of the Holy Spirit, who is our guarantee. Do you get that? Do you get that? Look here in verse 11. Continuing on this idea that all these things are found in Jesus, that all these things are found in in who he is, and how we are to understand our incorporation with him. It says in verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Now an interesting thing happens, and I want you to, to cue in on this and and know this before we go in so you don't think it's this bait and switch. 11 and 12 is really a description of Paul and other Jewish believers, okay? Now we get this in 12. He says, we were the first to hope in Christ. He's not talking about uh, Paul and his friends that came to Ephesus and they just spilled it out and everybody else came to know later. I think Paul is making a somewhat veiled but, but decidedly clear reference and extension to Jews. Right? This is kind of what Paul is talking about in Romans. It is, the gospel is the power of God to salvation for all who believe to the who first. It rhymes with who. Yeah, you got that? It took me a lot of work in the study to figure out what rhymed with Jew. You would think it would have been who. I was working with whom, and that threw me off. Yeah. So in 12 and 11, he's talking about the Jew, and then 13, he, he turns and he brings it to the Gentile. But watch this, he says... In him we have obtained an inheritance over and over and over again. God speaks of Israel being his inheritance. In Deuteronomy 4.20, you can flip there. In Deuteronomy 4.20 it says, But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt. God found his people in slavery. He brought them out. I mean, he... He he went through these incredible things to bring them out. He split the waters. He raised up a stuttering, stammering leader and he led this people out. He brought them out of slavery, out of bondage and he delivered them to freedom and ultimately to the promised land. He said out of the iron furnace out of Egypt I brought you to be a people of his own inheritance. He says as you are to this day. As you are to this day. So Paul writes and he says, look, in Christ, they have obtained an inheritance. In Christ, they've they've obtained an inheritance. And he says, look at this. This is how it came to be. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things to the counsel of his will. Having been predestined predestined this is something very similar he said to everyone in verses 4 and 5 look at verse 4 and 5 in chapter 1 he says even as he chose us in him he chose all who would believe in christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love verse 5 he predestined us for adoption as sons through jesus christ according to the purpose of his will God is setting and establishing all these things. But look here, he says, he predestined them according to the purpose of of him who does something amazing. See, God's not just working out and sovereignly intending their end and their purpose, but he gives them this clue that is so much more expansive than that. It's so much more amazing than that. According to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God's working all things according to the counsel of his will. There's so many things that we're tempted to seek to divorce in our Christian lives. So you think that in in some sense there is a realm or a structure in your life that you get to make decisions, and then there's a realm and a structure where God needs to make decisions or gets to make decisions, and occasionally, just to maintain the relationship, like you cross over into his territory, and you're like, God, I'm here. Can you help me out? I've got some problem back here in my land. Can you come over? And so God comes over, and he sets it straight and sets all these things the way that you want them to, and he said, God, can you go back over there? Can you just go back over there? Because I'm not, I'm not fully comfortable in you having say, and you having sway, and you guiding and directing, and you laying these things out in my territory, in my area, in my, my workspace. You understand, I've got a cubicle. It's small, but it's mine. This is my stapler, not somebody else's. My name is on it. God, leave it alone. He works all things. Friend, you've got no sphere that he doesn't control. You've got no hobby that he's not involved in and reigning over. You might think that That there's some area of your life that you can just separate from him and and keep apart from him. All believers find everything in submission to him. Amen? And to be a Christian is to necessarily want these things. This is why we find guilt and, 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 and wranglings in our convictions and struggling through things when we seek to have areas of our life that aren't affected by the gospel. This is why we, we, we find ourselves struggling in, in, with all these sins and things when we try and find areas of our life and say, God can't have any sway over this. He doesn't fully understand. Pastor, you just don't know my life. You just don't know my family. You've, you've never met my wife, and if you did, buddy, you'd remember. She's ter- awesome. Terribly awesome That's what I was going to say. There's no area of your life that is off limits to him. He's superintending, guiding, directing all things according to the counsel of his will, which gives us an indication that it's perfect. The counsel of God's will is not errant. The counsel of God's will is not specious. The counsel of God's will, it it, it doesn't fall short. It's perfect in all these things as it is working them out perfectly. How do you respond to that? It's a pretty good indication as you look back at your week, as you look at those things upcoming, what are those things that you're actively bringing before the throne of God? And what are those things you're just struggling with and trying to figure out? And, and you don't really reach out and pray outside of this. guy. would you help me in this? You don't really reach out and pray until you come to the point where you absolutely recognize you're a complete failure and you're destroying everything and everybody around you. As Christians, as those who are in Christ, who have redemption in Christ, we have this tremendous resource in Christ, in God, through the power of the Holy Spirit. What is it about us that, that makes us want to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and just struggle and, and strain and groan and do things on our own? Is it, is it Americanism? Is this something that, that I'm the only one that's struggling with here? I see Frank in the back. He's like, that's right. <laughs> Look what Paul says here. Paul says all these things have been predestined, they've been set. God's doing all these things through the purpose that he's using to work all things out. Paul gets into verse 12, he says, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Paul looks at the the plan and the purposes of God and he said all these things should resound in praise and adoration to God. Paul looks at, at God calling Abraham in Genesis 12, who he blessed him so that he might go be a blessing to others. He looks at all of these things. He says, all of our actions in response to God's choosing, calling, electing, s- establishing, all of these things should praise and glorify God. All of our responses should bring praise Back to God. We should be worshiping God in all things because nothing is off limits. Because he's establishing setting, moving all things according to his perfect will. And Paul gets into verse twelve, he says, so that we are the first to hope in Christ. All those men and women in the Old Testament that were saved were saved in Christ. And it's not that you know Jesus came and he died, and now we can be saved in Jesus. It's not that in the Old Testament, God set and established it and said, in the Old Testament, if you're a good person, you're in. When the New Testament comes, it's not enough to be good. Now you've got to be righteous. Now you've got to find your salvation in Jesus. Jesus is always the way for everyone to be saved. Jesus is always the only way for anyone to be saved. And so every man, woman, and child that is ever saved is ultimately only saved in Jesus. Amen? To the praise and glory and honor of God. You know, in verse 13, Paul does something simply amazing. We know from, from studies of church history, uh, through reading uh, Galatians and, and some other books, that there is tension in the early church between Gentile believers and so let 's call them pagan background believers and then Jewish background believers there 's some tension there they 're trying to figure out how to how to be in this family together, how to be in this family together how to cohabitate in the household of God with one another, how to, to integrate certain cultural things that are bringing in, and, and then they look at the pagan culture and they're like, oh, oh you know, I don't know how, we, how we're going to bring that in. What do you look like? You know? Maybe, maybe you know, just calm down just a little bit. We'll just, we'll just bring you along. We'll just bring you along. But in verse 13, Paul gives us this, this beautiful picture that God is bringing the Jew and the Gentile together. God is, is bringing together factions who were, were in the past adamantly opposed to one another. The Roman looked down on the Jew. The Jew thought the Roman was unclean, impure. The Jew looked at his life and said, God is my sovereign, God is, is over me. This pagan over here is lost and he's outside of the care and the purview of God. But we see in verse 13, he says, in him you also. Game changer. Everyone that is saved is saved in who? It's in Jesus. Everyone that is saved everywhere is saved in Jesus. God moves to save Israel. He brings them in. God moves to save Israel the Gentile world, he moves to save you and I, he saves us in Jesus, he's bringing together these disparate warring factions, he's bringing together the people that typically really just don't care very much for one another, and they find unity and compassion and restoration and reconciliation in Jesus, in him you also. Paul isn't offering a caveat. He's not offering an aside. He's not saying, in you, kind of like us. In you, you know, sort of like us, but just not as good. Like, I remember what it is to be a little brother. At at Christmas, my brother got a a CD player when I was younger. And this is when everybody had tape decks and CD players just came out. So this is really cool. You you can go back there with me. Some of you are like, I remember when I got my first eight-track player. I remember I got my first, you know, Whatever. And you're cranking that radio and you're getting those tunes. Anyway, I got a CD player. This is my story, not your story. And so this is at Christmas time. My parents said, do you want your big present now? Like, has anybody ever answered no to that? You're like, big present? Away from me, trash. You want your big present now? I was like, absolutely. My brother said, yeah, whatever. He's a teenager though. And so they bring out My brother's present. Why they didn't bring them out at the same time, I have no idea. They bring out his amazingly awesome, let's just call it an entertainment center, right? I got a CD player, let's call his an entertainment center. Like remote control, it had a tray that slid in and out, it had you know ginormous speakers. They were big for the day. And then they brought mine out and it's got a handle. And so my dad's like, here you go. I'm like, awesome. It's compact. <laughs> Look, mine's all in one. What about yours? He's like, I got a speaker there, I got a speaker there. I'm controlling it. I'm like, I'm controlling mine too. <laughs> You've got a tray, I've got a lid. <laughs> That's not what God's doing. He doesn't go to the Jew and say, I've got this amazing thing for you. You are a people for my possession. I'm bringing you in. I'm lavishing my grace and mercy on you. And you know what? I've got some leftovers over here for this Gentile. Let me me save him, but just a little bit. Paul shows us his amazing combination and the providential grace and caring and mercy of God. He says, in him you also. God moves to save and establish Abraham and his seed, and he moves in compassion to establish the salvation of all those who would believe in Christ. So Paul tells him, and he says, In him you also, when you heard the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. And so he gives us this beautiful picture of what it is to respond to the gospel. He says, and and, and really these things shouldn't be taken as you did this, you did this, you were sealed. But what we see is this, this once for all picture that you were sealed. You were firmly established. You were made steadfast in your response, in your relationship to God at the time when you heard and believed. All of these things happened at the same time. He sealed you, he established you on the basis of your response to the gospel. It is on the basis of their response to the gospel that affects their eternal salvation. It is on the basis of our response to the gospel that determines our eternal salvation or damnation. Your eternal destiny hangs in the balance, and that's what Paul's establishing here. He says, when you heard the word of truth, when you heard the true gospel, not the gospel according to how you want it to be, not that, you know, I really like the Jesus who heals me of disease, but I hate the Jesus that calls me to die and to surrender to self. I really like the Jesus I hear on television that tells me that I should get the prime parking spot, that I should get the best seat on the plane. I really love the Jesus who tells me my bank account should be full, my wife should be beautiful, and my kids should be obedient, and that dog should not pee on the carpet anymore. I love that Jesus. That's the Jesus of life enhancement, but Jesus calls to a life of suffering. He calls us to a life of submission. He calls us to a life where we lay down our wills in support of his. He calls us to a life of saying no to me and yes to him. He calls us to a life of considering others more worthy of the gospel than we do ourselves. We responded to the word of the truth. Paul tells us that it is the gospel of our salvation. This book. This collection of writings that God is, is working and providing and caring for and making sure that, that they stay perfect and whole. This is where our salvation stems from. It is the communication of God through the agency of man. And he's upholding it and he's caring for it and he's bringing it to you. And you hear that. You hear and respond to the fact that you were lost in sin, but God loves you, he sent His son for you, he visits salvation and brings it to you, and you respond. And what he says to them here is when you heard the word of truth, you believed the gospel of your salvation, you were saved. You believed in him, the one true king. And he said, when you did this, you were sealed with the promise Holy Spirit. Can I tell you, this idea of sealing is radically important for us to get. This idea of, of sealing is so incredibly important. We make so much of our vocal response to God. And, and so when you talk to people, and oftentimes when I meet with people that come in and want help from the church, what they want to talk about is their response to God, what, what they did. They said, look, I walked an aisle. I, I said this prayer. I really remember it very clearly. But you start asking them, from what did God do for you? How did God affect your eternal destiny? How did God change things for you? And they get really foggy really fast. Everyone who believes is sealed by God. You don't seal yourself. You don't firmly establish yourself. You don't guarantee yourself. God is doing this for the believer. They were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. This idea of, of sealing in the first century, it was to do a number of things. One, it was it was to... Keep people from stealing things, and so if everybody is terrified of Ed, Ed's got this really big seal that looks a lot like his head because that rhymes with Ed, and so he takes and he puts this seal on his stuff, and we don't take it because we oh oh man, you don't mess with the Ed sandwich. That's a scary thing, and so the, the strength of whether or not people will violate that seal is based on the strength of the one who set it and established it. Now, I know something about this seal. When I was in college, I shared a house with four other men. This is a bad idea. You should have conversations on the front end like, do you bathe often? What are your night habits like? Do you have a job? How do you feel about paying rent? Like, these are all good conversations that no 19-year-old has ever had with anyone anywhere. And so we had a, a, a roommate who shall go nameless because I, I've been around the world. One of you is clearly related to him. I'm not saying that because you're bad people. I'm just saying that because the world is small. Don't be offended yet. And so there are all of us in this house together. Look, none of us had ever really lived with other guys before, and so, but we'd all been raised in homes, and homes have how many budgets? One, right? How many budgets do homes have? One. Some of your homes have no budgets, and that's why you can't answer that question. But, and so homes have one budget, and so we said, look, we want to we be friends, we want to be brothers, we love each other in Jesus. Everything gets really spiritual until it comes to money, and then it gets really spiritual really fast, especially for those that don't want to contribute to the kitty, to the pool. And so we go out, and we're buying groceries, and and one of the roommates is like, oh, man, let's buy the family size. I'm like, I don't really like that. He's like, but we're a family. I was like, oh, man, I love you, brother. And so we're buying family size Kraft macaroni and cheese, which I don't like. We're buying family size this, family size that, and and probably the second week we live there, things are still great, because we're not dealing with any issues. And I walk into the kitchen, and there's this huge bowl sitting in the sink of you know, craft, it's a family size, like the whole thing, noodles, like macaroni and cheese. It's the powdered type. And so it's just sitting there, and so I went to my roommate and I said, what's this? He said, well, I really just wanted a small bowl. I said, but you cooked all of it. You know, you cooked all of it. You know, know, put the rest away, like eat on it later. It's like, oh man, I don't eat leftovers. I was like, this family's in trouble. And so we, we had to move to this system where everybody had their sign, their, their seal that they put on stuff. Our family grocery shopping trips dissolved. Like nobody wanted to grocery, shop, grocery uh, shop with anybody. Like, man, I'm going to the grocery store. Oh, no, no, that's cool. I'll go, I'll go by myself. Like, can you pick me up? No. Can I share? No. Like we had our own sugar, our own flour, our own salt. I really thought it was going to get to the point where we're like dividing water. This is your jug, this is my jug. You know, like, I mean, it's, you know, I've got my burner on the stove, my burner's always clean, their burners are always, well, let's just not talk about it. And so when you would open up our fridge, we were big milk drinkers, and so you'd see like four or five gallons of milk, and like, I would have my initials all over it with death threats. Do not drink, I, I drink out of the jug, I backwash into the jug, don't drink. I didn't do any of those things, but I wanted them to believe that I did. I didn't want them touching my stuff. Our ability to have these things rested on other roommates, recognizing and respecting our seal and our stamp on those things. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, his seal rests on you. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is offering testimony to God that you are his. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, his spirit is inside you and it's giving ready testimony back to the Father and it is convicting you of sin and it is guiding you in righteousness. This is why when you sin, when you mess up, when you do the things you're not supposed to do, you feel bad. Because God is at work inside of you and he's continuing to put, together, put to death sin and to make you alive to him and to righteousness. Amen? Amen? His seal is upon you. You didn't put it there. He sealed you with the Holy Spirit. And look at this. It is the Holy Spirit, verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. It's not your ability to press on, to persevere, to do well, to be moral. It is God who sealed you with the Holy Spirit. It is God who gave you the Holy Spirit as a guarantee, a pledge, a payment, a down payment. He's the guarantee of our inheritance. We have not yet received our full inheritance. This life, praise God, is not all that there is. This existence, praise God, is not all that is coming to us. The Holy Spirit is abiding in us and testifying to God on the basis of our seal, on the basis of that guarantee, until when? We see that it is until we acquire possession of it, to the praise and glory of God. praise and glory of God, the Holy Spirit is inside of us. He is testifying to who's, who we are belonging to. Do you recognize that? I'm deathly afraid that there are so many in our community, and, I, and I've met a number of them, that they think that at the end of their life, this is what it's going to be like. That God's going to pull them up and he's going to say to them, friend, How many good things did you do? And they're going to start running through the list. Man, I helped little ladies across the street. I never stole from no one except for that one guy, and nobody ever liked him. You know Robin Hood. I was like him. And they're going to run through all the list of things that that they presume God will be uh, excited about. Charitable charitable to them on the basis of what they've done. They think, they presume that God is going to look at their moral good deeds and be blown away and say, come on in, the water's nice. And then God will look at their bad deeds and say, Whoa, man, you got a lot of these bad deeds. Were you hanging out with Tim? You got a lot of these bad deeds. Were you hanging out with Joel? You got a lot of these bad deeds. What did you do for a living? It's close. We're going to have to kick this one to accounting. We're going to have to get a forensic CPA, and he's going to be digging through things in your life. We're going to have to get into the things you actually thought. And the guy is just like, oh, not my thought life. Please, God. That's surely going to kick the balance out of order. Like we laugh, and it sounds ridiculous, but but by and large, this is how people live. This is how people live. This is the temptation as we view our culture for Christians. This is how Christians are, unfortunately, thinking that it's appropriate to respond to the gospel. That the basis of our Christianity is is morality. That the basis of our Christianity is having enough good responses and not enough bad responses to God. And that it's on the basis of that, of whether or not the Father is pleased with us. Currently. Don't be foolish. God is not mocked. The only work of righteousness was afforded to us by Christ. The only thing worthy of salvation is ours because of Him. We read about it in Ephesians. In Him, verse 7, we have redemption, payment, release through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. My immoral deeds far outweigh my moral deeds. Your immoral thoughts, your selfish thoughts far outweigh your moral ones. And you think, oh, you don't know me. Unfortunately, I do. But do you know yourself? Do you know your heart? Don't be confused. God planned before time began to save all people who would be saved through Christ. To adopt us as sons and daughters of the Most High. Don't be confused. He saved us not according to works done by us in righteousness, but according to Jesus whose blood covers us with forgiveness and righteousness. Don't be confused. He perseveres. He keeps you saved. He keeps you pressing on. He ensures all of these things for you. Because he is a good and a gracious God, because those things that he planned in eternity past, he brought to fruition and reality in you in time, and he will keep you saved. He sealed you until the end. And what is our response to this? It's not morality. It's not that people in the community look at you and say, oh man, Ben is a Christian, I can just see it. Our response to this is to worship him. In worship we do so many things in response to what God has done, but our response to what God has done, what Jesus has afforded us, what the Holy Spirit did for us in salvation, what it continues to do for us as we persevere, is Worship. So the question becomes, are you worshiping him? Are you worshiping him? Is God praised and honored and glorified in you on the basis of what he has done for you? Are you worshiping him? People should recognize every church in this community is being overrun with worshipers of Jesus Christ. Worshipers of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. Are you worshiping?